You are listening to the Next Best Series podcast, and these are Will Mavity's interviews with the composer for Severance, Theodore Shapiro, production designers Jeremy Hindle and Nick Francone, and cinematographer Jessica Lee Gagne. Hello, my name is Mark S., and I have, of my own free accord, elected to undergo the procedure known as Severance. Obviously, one of the standouts is your amazing theme music in general. I think you've you've mentioned before that like you started with that and then just kind of built the entire score around. Yeah, we we you know I I, I sent Ben this idea, and um, I I sent it to him, and I thought I had something, and he didn't respond for like weeks. <laughs> And I was like, oh man, too bad. He, I, I, thought, I thought he might go for that. But then he called one day and he was like, oh, I'm listening to this piece. This is amazing. This, you know, I'm really excited about this. So at that point, and, and at that point, it was during the pandemic when everything was shut down. So it was actually this, this strange gift where we had time to really explore. And um, so at that point, I really started shifting my focus towards towards really expanding on that theme. And, um, and I developed, you know, a whole library in a sense of, of music developed around that thematic material. And, you know, as we got into working on the show, it was just this thing where it just kept feeling right over and over again. You know, it just kept feeling like the sound of the show and, um, and so we we really stayed true to to the theme and, and and focused, you know, rather than on having different themes, we focused on just seeing how much we could pull it apart and vary it and put it into different contexts. So we just squeezed as much juice out of it as possible. So the underlying theme, what instruments are we hearing there besides obviously piano? Yeah, so 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 there's um, you know in the main title music there's piano and then the piano is sort of subtly doubled um, by an electric piano that's got this wobble on it that just sort mm-hmm. of gives it this this weird instability, you know. And then when it kicks in, you have strings, you have um, you know you have a program beat, um, you have a synth bass that's that's really deep and fat and um and then you know at the end you have this this sort of what we call like a fritz out effect um which is actually it's really just a one piano note reversed mm. so it, it sounds really electronic but what it is is it, it's a it's a reversed piano note so as the sound gets louder, because it's reversed, so so the the loudest part is at the end. I start chopping out little bits of the audio file um, randomly, and so it has this sort of glitchy, stuttery effect. And then I also add distortion as it as it as it gets louder. So it has this electronic glitchy, stuttery effect, but it's actually just a piano, uh, <laughs> like like where we started. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, it 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 you get it into sound out. design in general. There, that's fun. Yeah, there's almost like an elevator music theme that yeah. you expand it into, kind of throughout the show. And uh, yeah. tell me a little bit about that track. It's it's yeah, beautiful, well, soothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the sound of the innie world at Lumen is this like late '50s exotica jazz, uh, you know, genre and. 
And sometimes that music is, is, you know, it's source music. It's, it's the actual, it's the actual real McCoy, but, but at times I get to actually write that material. So, um, you know, for example, on the track labor of love from the soundtrack, that is, that is me writing in that style, um, which is a lot of fun to do. And, you know, it, it obviously underlines this idea of a, of a, you know, gloriously happy any life at Lumen that, um, <laughs> that obviously is only a veneer for what's really going on. Right. So some of those tracks, what do you have there? I know uh, it seems like you have like maracas going on. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, first of all, there's a cowbell that I played myself, which I'm very proud of. <laughs> I got a fever. Um, the only cure is more cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there are there, there's there's a lot of Latin percussion. There's shaker. There's congas. There's um, triangle, and uh, a little bit of synth. A little bit of of, of sneaky um, modular synthesizer percussion in there. Uh, and then and then as the sound you know as the sound opens up, you've got you've got an alto flute playing the melody, which is very period. Uh, and then, of course, strings and then voices when it when it really gets glorious, we bring in the choir. So, yeah, so that that that's the evolution of that track. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> OK, so maybe the coolest track in the entire show is the Four Tempers. Oh, uh-huh. uh, it, it's so sick. So tell me everything about that track. Well, it's funny because at, at a certain point they were getting ready to work on to, to cast the dancers. And Ben, he sent me just an iPhone video of a dancer, of, of an audition for the dancers. And so I thought, I'm just gonna score the audition. And so, so <laughs> I, brought the, I brought the iPhone video into my system and then just wrote a piece of music to, that, that felt like it went along with it. And so, you know, it was it was like choreography in reverse, where where the dance came first, and then I I scored um, to it, and it really just kind of developed organically, where these sort of harsh cello sounds um, felt like a very good counterpoint to what the dancers were doing, and yeah. um, it's such a totally bizarre scene, and it felt like it needed something fairly aggressive to go with it. I know. Well, yeah, the whole, I mean, I'm sure the same thing happened to everyone when you hear a waffle party. That's uh, <laughs> not what I expected. <laughs> uh, okay, so there's another track as you get late into the season. I was fascinated by, you know, obviously the entire final episode is well executed, but one of the reasons I'm so on the edge of my seat is the music you have. You're building mm. up, it almost seems like there's like a ticking clock going on there. Yeah to really emphasize the tension and the short time that yes. they have in the real world. So tell me about that track, because it's great. Well, yeah, so, so um, at a certain point, the, the, the two people that I collaborated with most closely were Ben and, and, and Jeff Richmond, who was the supervising editor. Mm-hmm. And so Jeff and I were talking one day about, we, we were really sort of starting with, the waffle party in episode mm-hmm. eight and talking about the show escalating from that point until the end of episode nine. And I sort of broached the idea of like, what if everything 
from the end of episode, from the end of the waffle party on, just felt like one cue. Mm. You know, just like one continuous idea. And so we we all liked that idea. And um, so I actually, at that point, just started working away from picture because um, it hadn't been shot yet um, <laughs> on a number of ideas all in the same tempo that could serve as material for episode nine. And you know, that would drive tension, but could do it in a very kind of sotto voce way, you know, to, to, to deal with dialogue. And so I wrote, you know, a large amount of music before, before I had picture in front of me. And it was really um, a great team effort where, where Jeff and Ben were using that material to cut to as they were working on the picture. And, you know, it, it became sort of, uh, you know, fitting that all together and making it all, making the pieces all feel like they connected was a real trick. It was a real oh, yeah. puzzle to assemble. But we, you know, it, it was a combination of, you know, them working with material that I had written in advance, me adding new material as, as the picture started to settle and, um, you know, and and the music editors, you know, working magic with the tracks that existed. And between all of us, we assembled this thing that finally, by the end, felt like it all fit together and, and uh, hopefully achieved the, the goal, which is which is this idea of just one continuous piece of music. Well, yeah, I referred to it as that track. But yeah, I guess, no, that, yeah, would you, that's, that's a great compliment. Um, yeah, because because you know it is all you know it is in actuality a number of tracks, but but um, but hopefully it feels like one thing. Yeah. So then, since you are, it seems writing, you have been writing music in advance for the show. Have you already started working on your season two cues before the show? <laughs> Not yet, but but I, I mean, but I plan to. That's that's sort of my that's that's part of part of my summer plans um, is to just start thinking about uh, the very difficult challenge of how to keep this material, you know, expanding and feeling fresh and new while, while also staying true to the core of what it is. It's, it's a difficult challenge. And, and um, I, I'm really excited to start thinking about, and I've already started thinking about, <laughs> you know, you know, what, what can be done to, um, to just expand on this language, to pull apart the the material, the melodic and harmonic material even further, but at the same time keep it at all within the language of the show. Well, I can't wait to hear it. One last question before we go. Yeah. Tell me about like the meditation room music. <laughs> well, it's so funny. I mean, that was a scene that they they sent me and I just it it was something that just sort of came easily. I just sort of mm -hmm. started playing something that felt like spa music and and the track just kind of came together and it really it really felt like it 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 worked nicely over the scene but to be honest i i didn't think too much about that that track um yeah. you know it 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 repeats a lot and mm -hmm. and it was not something that i you know spent a lot of time thinking about um, and then I was very sort of pleasantly surprised when after we released the soundtrack, 
and that was not on it. Uh, I got a lot of requests to release just the wellness music yeah. um, as a separate item, which we ultimately did. So uh, I'm really glad that that piece has resonated with people and, um, and, and glad to have gotten it out there. Yeah, that, that's what I noticed because I saw there was like a secondary album release for that. And I was like, oh, wow. OK. <laughs> OK, well, thank you so much, Ted. I can't wait to hear season two's music. And, uh, you know, this is one of the best TV soundtracks of the year. So oh, uh, best of luck so in the season. Thank you. Thank you. It's really nice to talk to you. Absolutely. All right. Have a great All rest right. of the week. I give consent to sever my memories between my work life and my personal life. I acknowledge that once the procedure is complete, I will be unable to access my personal memories whilst on the severed floor. Say gratitude. Nor will I retain work memories. Hey. Sorry, when I return home at the end of the day. I make these statements freely. You know, it's a given. I can't think of many shows where the production design has been as overtly integral to how it works. Now, first and foremost, the interior of Lumen, it looks big because it is big, right? Like yeah. it's it, miles. Yeah. It's miles. Well, the theory is that it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, that building is massive. But the idea of the company is that when I first asked Dan, the writer, like, how far underground is, does this idea go? And he said, miles, like <laughs> under the, under the town, it goes forever, like as far as you can imagine in the, his so, head. So in his head, it's miles, but like, this isn't just camera trickery. It's also like several very large sets, right? Oh, like how big yeah, is Yeah, a lot. And I mean, the, the location is massive for the exterior, but the interior, yeah, the hallways we built forever. And, they, and there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of extent extension to make them look like some of them are really long and just keep going and going and going. Like I remember, if you remember episode seven, the dance episode, they just keep panning and walking forever. And it's so funny. It's, I mean, <laughs> for us, it was, they should be able to wander and wander and get lost. and and they do well People, yeah and the crew did <laughs> oh that's scary honestly like yeah. even even knowing that's a set i would be freaked out just getting yeah. lost in there yeah i'm excited i get to go back in two weeks and kind of walk through it again it's been so long oh yeah well when did you guys shoot this when did they they probably finished last fall okay summer i remember they did reshoots in the fall um i finished i was on it like two over two like two years ago this summer, I would have finished it. Yeah. And oh, wow. It's a COVID. Yeah. So two years ago, long time. Like COVID is a blur. <laughs> right. Right. Blur. Uh, okay. So it's objectively a huge set. I think it was like basically two sets stitched together to create the interior of Lumen. Or is it three? Um, like which one? Like how so? Well, the, the white hallways, right? Like they're. Yeah. Um, so that's like one, one stage has MDR, which is the main set with the desks. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's, a, there's hallways that go all the way around that set. And then there's another one that, and they connect to a bunch of other sets. It's quite a big stage. Okay. So that's that one, like that, the MDR also has wellness, has the, the staircase, has the break room, which is with its own little separate hallway. That's it's all on the mm -hmm. same stage. It's all interactive. And also the, um, the interview room where like we're in the conference room, that's all on one stage. That's so big. Oh I mean, it's God. packed. It walled, it's, like, it, it's basically you built to the fire lanes and we went to the fire lanes. Like it's just the complete, it, <laughs> there's no space at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, so let's talk about, I guess, at the kind of the center, uh, we have our office space where we spend most of the time in the show. One thing I like about it is um, 
all of the the desks and the the computers have this very like retro vibe to their style and it's also you've really made them functional in a fun way you know things can like slide up and down and so tell me a little bit about designing their actual desk space i mean it, it's originally it was it's that sort of reference was playtime and not that like playtime you know is a fabricated world another 60s movie mm-hmm. um it was sort of like that everything here is fabricated underground is we don't really want to know what time it is, what year it is. We really don't. It's not important to the show. And it's important to actually feel a little bit for the characters underground. They should be completely, it's their own time. This is right. their time in the world. So we wanted to fabricate everything that you couldn't get lost in. You know, if they ever got out and explained it to anybody, it would make no sense. Mm-hmm. So one, it's pleasing to look at. It's fun. Because these things were like designed almost for them, like they're lab rats. You know, they're, they're experimenting on them. So they kind of build everything that they want for their interact to learn to see how they interact with things. And, and also and for me, it was fun to design because it gives me the license to design things for actors to do too, like right. make everything practical that, oh my God, let's see what they're going to do with it too. Because they're, they're like babies. They're like these <laughs> newborns into this place. It's like a playground. And it's like, okay, what are they going to do? If there's the, they have the script, the dialogue, but then the desk is interactive. The computer pads are interactive. It's a trackball. Like there's all these things to kind of, like play with like a child, you know, like the finger, what are those finger things called that um, Dylan has, the Zach Cherry's character, like the, what does he call, what are they called again? Oh, I, little, what they the called, finger. they were Chinese something or like. Yeah, whatever. like there's, you know, there's just, that, and that's in the script. Like, so th- there's all these sort of playful things to um, kind of, it's fun to watch. And it's also, yeah. it's just to see what they do. So a lot of like their their interactions, their not their non-spoken interactions were just kind of things that weren't entirely in the script. You just built this fun desk setup and it's just yeah. yeah, that's really cool. No, super fun. And then and then definitely some of it's written. It's like, but it's also they're looking at numbers on the screen and it's like, okay, what are they, what do they get? Like, how do they do this? And it's also yeah. we've kind of designed the program. The software is compatible with the keypad and the trackball that they can mm-hmm. move in. They can, they can move in this world, whatever this world is. What about um, the sliding frames that go up between the desks and down? So like I've shot offices a million times and it's terrifying because they're never that interesting to shoot. Right. And also those dividers are constantly blocking eye lines all the time, like in a regular office. So you tend to, like, we always build them, like we shoot them lower or you get rid of them, but it doesn't really feel real most of the time. So I was like, what if we just make them that they can control them? If they want to see somebody, they can. And if we don't, they don't. And if direct, you know, whoever's directing it wants to be able to play with it, or if an actor wants, it just gave everyone the license to be more playful in the space. And, um, And it's just fun to shoot. And it changes that setup constantly, which makes it, you know, it's, it's a long, I mean, I think we're in that office like three hours of the first season. That's a lot. Yeah. It had to be interesting. It has to be fun and it has to be shootable. And, but it's also, I, as soon as I knew John Turturro was in it, I thought, what is he, it's going to be so much fun. I know he's going to do it. And what's he going to do with it? Like just giving people these things to do and watch is so fun. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one of my favorite locations, and you mentioned it earlier, is the break room. That is room. horrifying. The long hallway that seems to stretch. Tell me a little bit about designing it to get that effect. I mean, I remember he wrote in the script, Dan wrote like long, skinny hallway, but I don't one really thinks what skinny means. And we designed it, I think it was, it was two, two inches outside my, my shoulders. And because there's that whole scene where Mark has to go down past, I gotta forget her name right now, um, Gemma. 
and they have to like meet and like we were like they have they should be able to like they have to turn and go sideways to pass each other like it has to be claustrophobic and also feels like it's just this is a una hallway like there's one way in and that's it and you shouldn't um because the break room was always like what an idea to call it a break room but it's it's the break room that yeah breaks you it's not a, <laughs> it's not the snack room and i love that room I, for me it was like i remember dan wrote um you know they're watching something on a screen or on a tv and i was like i think it has to be you know through onto her face like i wanted to see that burnt in image mm-hmm. of the text that she's reading because she is you know she reads it over a thousand times and it's um, that repetition. That I just want to see it literally looks like it's being burnt into her skin mm. while she's looking at Milchik who can't, she can't see him, but he can literally watch her and he sees it on her. And it was just visually like a really beautiful way to shoot those scenes. It's so powerful when she's just saying the same words over and over and over. And it was like how to just make it really visual and fun to watch. Yeah. It infers a lot. Like I love that set really infers like you're you're listening but you're also like wow there's so much going on in this in this idea so what does that set look like because it's obviously lit uh, lit so we we see them at the desk and we see those words projected on there did you guys build that out more or was it built to be sparse just in general built to be sparse yeah the walls are canted they all kind of lean in it's very tiny it's a small size but you know it's probably 16 by 10, 8 maybe and every wall was like leaning and canted. So it kind of felt really you compressed and you're just, there's n- there's no way to dress it because I wanted the walls on an angle that it didn't, it wasn't about furniture. This space was about being uncomfortable. Yeah. And also creating angles to shoot that it was always like everything about them is a bit fractured and it's distorted. And why are they in this? This room is to make you feel uncomfortable on mm. purpose. And that was, that's super fun. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, so Obviously, there's a lot of the set that is designed to make you uncomfortable, but it's also often very symmetrical in general. You know, everything's very, um, I'm thinking like, uh, what's Patricia Arquette's character's office? Cobell. What's Cobell. her name? Cobell. Cobell, yeah, her office. Oh, yeah. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. There's a lot of symmetry going on there and a lot of very nice geometric spaces. So tell me a little bit about that space in general. I mean, Cobell's was the interesting because she's the one that's not severed. Mm-hmm. So everyone else is underground and they don't know what daylight is. Daylight to them is irrelevant. They're just babies being born into a room where they'll live their whole lives. Cobell is unsevered. So she, we gave her, we were like, well, she has to have sort of daylight just naturally at some time, but we don't know how much time she spends down here. But so we built this sort of light well that's probably like, you know, seven stories underground. She can't see anything when she looks up it, but she gets a natural, enough natural late daylight to slowly make, like, sort of make her not so white. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and it was really just, you know, symmetrical, beautiful, but, but cold and not comfortable. And she, obviously she's not at the top. She's at the bottom. Like she's down there with them, with just a tight, just enough sunlight to make it palatable. There's another great set, obviously, that is very different from everyone else, everything else here. And that's the perpetuity wing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously that has a couple parts. I'd love to talk a little bit, a bit about all of them. I mean, you have that kind of museum space and then there's the old Victorian mansion and then there's the creepy ass like smile photo wing. Yeah. So I guess let's start with the statue space because that's an interesting one. I mean, ultimately Dan wrote it just like it is. Like they go into the perpetuity wing. They walk through all, there's, here's the Keegan family. It's, how, it's his way of writing that here you introduce to each here are the members of this, this mm. religious family, whatever they are. It, they're like, it's like all the presidents. There's that sort of same quality of um, you know, these wax figures that are creepy and strange. Right. And, but you see their history of their family. 
and then you go, you know, then there's a smile wall, which is, <laughs> that's just Dan's head. <laughs> there's a smile wall, of course there is, which is so funny. And then, so the interesting thing was when we were designing, it was like, how are we gonna, like the set is massive, it's underground. Um, they have to, you know, they just walk to it underground. So we found this location in the Bronx that's actually a museum, this beautiful kind of brutalist museum that has the brutalist building, which is the museum part. Then there's this gorgeous courtyard into this Victorian house. And it's like, that's actually what we wanted. And it was like, why don't we just take this and put it underground and underground lumen? Wait, the so, museum already had the house built in there? Yeah, it's, and it's wow. outside. So basically the whole way it works, that they come out the door, they go across the grass, and it's from the inside. The inside was the location for the, the like the gallery. So then they come through, cross the grass into that house. And it's like, why don't we just like very Charlie Kaufman-esque put this underground? Yeah. And it's just basically like a big stage. And it's like, so we just did a quick rendering of what it would look like just to kind of pitch the idea. You know, let's just cover it. Let's just say it's underground and lit. And then it just was kind of a, it just worked. It was perfect. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, amazing. Now, what about designing the interior of, I, I assume that the interior of that Victorian house is a separate set or did you design? Location. That's inside that house. Really? Yeah. Wow. Perfect yeah. house. Yeah. That's crazy. No, it's, it's kind of a, it's sometimes the world comes and finds you. Like when you know what you want and you can see it, it's, it's like the bonus of doing this, like, you know, any, any design is you might, when, when you really know what you want and something can, you, it's, it's not, it's like when people say you're, you're lucky. It's not, it's not luck. It's preparedness meets opportunity. Right. Yeah. And it's just, it just happened. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy, crazy thing. I had never scouted that place for real. I did it all visually from photographs and drawings. Oh, that's crazy. And it works. It's amazing. It's yeah. just a really great space. It worked, you know, cause a lot of this, some of that we did during COVID, I couldn't scout. It was when we couldn't, we couldn't go anywhere. Um, so we designed it based on this would be a cool idea. And it, it was, and it was in the language. It was just everything about it was right. Yeah. Now, what about the, uh, the elevator space and the stair space? Cause those are, I guess, are like portals to the real world. Tell me a little bit about designing both of those spaces. I mean, the elevator was the theory was it's, you know, it's a single person elevator. So once again, I thought it, it has to be really narrow. Um, mm -hmm. it's just, you have to know that only one person goes in, but it was also, let's make it a little bit deeper so that it's long and, and, and narrow that you know just when they stand in there it's because it was always about okay how do we see them in their transition of go, coming down in the elevator there has to be some visual cue that makes people feel like something's happened right. and Jessica the DB had this you know she had this amazing idea where she wanted to shoot on a robotic arm this high-speed robotic arm so the camera travels like 20 feet in a second and that 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 transition in Adam's face and eyes or any of the actors it's all optical so it's just, a, it looks like a really quick, like zoom, but it's, it's a full optical effect that's 20 feet long. That's like, cool. So the, that designing that elevator with that was, you just, it was, you needed the most minimal corners, the most minimal detail that was just so subtle. If it was really a detailed elevator, it had a lot of like detail and a lot of, it would, it would actually be so distracting. It had to be really, it was more about watching the actor's face and feeling the shift in them. That was actually, that was amazing. That was a lot of work to do that elevator. Yeah. The staircase is, you know, we built that too. And the key is that the staircase had to interact with the hallway. And I always wanted Adam to be able to kind of stand around the corner at the uh, mark around the corner of the hallway. So he could just kind of lean there because he knew she was never going to leave. Mm -hmm. There is no way out. You know, she goes through the staircase, in, through the door to the staircase and she is another person. And she, of course, will always walk back in going, how did I get here? 
there's, there's really no way out. So the staircase was, again, was like how to create, that has a light pool, like a natural light well at the top. It was always like the second you stepped out of those zones, you had daylight to feel like, okay, because Milcha can go in those areas. Cobell could go, but any severed person, once they go through the door, would always get lost. They would never know how they got here. So it's super fun to design too. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the production design of the show is incredible, and I can't wait to see what you guys are going to do to further expand that world in season two. Uh, I assume we'll get to see more of the Lumen space, and that's uh, very exciting. So it's you know what amazing I love? I love that your age likes the show. Like I think like my like my daughter's 22, my son's eight, like a lot of younger people like what's it and they like that they like design, which I'm super I'm I'm super mm. I love that people are really into design again because it feels like there was a real segue where people you know, there was gaming and like even I did an interview for Vulture magazine and they're all gamers. And even the guy that you know, he was like, dude, we don't watch television. Oh and he was like where we all watch the show and we want the, they want, they're all buying the computers. They're, they're making their own keypads. Mm. And there's this kind of this linkage to just, I think it's, and it, cause I think it's, it's, it's just fun. It's like yeah. engaging and fun and fantasy. And it's, it's, that's so nice that people respond to it that way. And, and your generation, especially, cause I think you're one of the hardest to get to watch things. Uh, yeah. I think that's very true. I mean, there's obviously so much to compete for, but this show did it. Yeah. I think you're, uh, the design is a big part of why it's just so cool to watch. Well, I think we're about out of time, but thank you so much. And good luck on your, on, your, uh, on your exam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on, on the bar. The bar yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Let's hope right. it goes well. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, brother. Nice to see you again. Hi, kids. What's for dinner? We warned you. About the greeting? You were kidding. We hate it. How many reasons did we come up with? Eight. Good morning. Hi, Mr. Milchek. Mark, could I have a word? Petey is no longer with this company. I'm sorry, Mark. You guys were one of my favorite office friendships. What happened? We'd love to tell you, but unfortunately, non-disclosure policy forbids. I confer upon you the advanced role of department chief. Congratulations. A handshake is available upon request. Thank you. May I have a handshake? I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
So I was curious, I know your, um, your official title on Severance is, I believe, assistant production designer or additional production designer? Yeah, additional production designer. Okay, so your, your title is additional production designer. So let me ask you this, which sets and designs, were you working with pretty much all of them or are there specific locations that have your stamp? Well, the the way Jeremy was uh, sort of forced to step back during COVID, um, mm-hmm. and so I sort of picked up the banner and, and ran. So we, um, uh, I had a lot of responsibility for especially for some of the sets in episodes one, two, and three. Um, although those are are in large part designed by Jeremy, and then I did. Um, most of the sets in sort of four, five, six, um, seven, eight, you know, that, that realm. So, uh, like MDR and the hallways and all that stuff was, was heavily done by Jeremy. Um, and then I did, but whereas I did like the conference room and, um, Miss Casey's room and this and, um, most of the exteriors and, uh, you know, I don't know, we could make a list, but that, that kind of, uh, it wasn't so much a division of labor as it was like what's what's left to be done in this environment and then I picked it up and ran it so well that's a good place to start uh you mentioned the exteriors so obviously there's two particularly interesting locations uh on the ex- well there's many but in particular the company housing I really love the design for in the exterior world they're living in these kind of like levitt towns um <laughs> yeah. I was curious a little bit about what you consulted for inspiration and kind of what you and the rest of the team were going for with the company housing they all live in. Well, yeah. The, so, you know, the, the thought was that, uh, and I should say that this is a, an exterior that Jeremy scouted for, and then we, we built the whole world kind of around it. Um, it, it was the sense that uh, everything as that you did with this company, you did under the banner of this company. You know, so so the thought that you know this um, mundane color scheme, this this samey sameness with slight variation, uh, was sort of permeated throughout. So you know, even when you go see like Dylan's house, for example, you know, we chose a neighborhood where every house is sort of the same shape. You know that um, that that everything has this kind of. Uh, sameness, even if even even as we go neighborhood to neighborhood. So you know, even even Bert's house is a kind of you know mirror of what Mark's house is. You know, so it, it that everything um, all kind of references back to this pure lumen blandness. You know, right. So you were saying that uh, there was location scouting. Um, were these pre-existing neighborhoods to an extent that you just augmented or did you construct entirely new housing communities basically no we we went out and found them and they're all over (laughs) (laughs) they're they're all up and down sort of the hudson river um and we sort of scouted far and wide you know so um We've got Bell Labs, which is way down south in New Jersey, and then for the for the exterior of Lumen, and then we're up in Nyack for Mark's house, and we were um, up, you know, even farther. So that the town of Kier is actually two towns glued together. You know, it was it was just a very specific thing that we scouted for for a long time to kind of find these pieces. So. Um, you know, the, the bridge and the park in the town of Kier is in a totally different town than the main street um, and the statue and all of, all of that 
stuff. So it's, it's, um, yeah, you know, they were 40 miles away in those places. So the, uh, the Lumen Laboratories you said was actually the building of, uh, you said it was Bell. What did you guys kind of do to augment and transform it a little bit more into Lumen? Well, the, the space itself is, you know, stunning. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, the, the roof, the glass, the, the atrium um, is all uh, original architecture. Um, what we did was, was sort of brand it in this Lumen way. So, you know, we replaced all the carpets with these sort of green um, nested squares. Uh, we, you know, put the, the carving of Kier on the existing giant concrete walls. Uh, as an after effect, um, we uh, we cleared the whole space out. You know, it's it's sort of used. That building is now used as like a community facility for that town. So mm. people bought it and have turned it. So we we basically covered every you know the coffee shops, the ballet studio, the golf store. Um, you know, we we sort of wiped out the. Uh, there was a COVID center there when we were shooting. Oh, wow. So all all of that, like you know, a COVID uh, testing facility and, and vaccination center. You know, so so we we swept it clean. Um, we we covered it uh, and made it this sort of uniform uh, one almost brought it back to what it was when it was originally Bell Labs in a way, you know, made it this company building again, as opposed to this disparate, you know, yeah. use facility. So, and, and really just tried to embrace the beautiful stone and the, you know, the, the uh, all that it has going for it, it whenever possible, restoring it back to uh, what it would have looked like. You know, um, I don't know if you shot the, uh, in the finale, the, um, the reception they're having on site was that located elsewhere i assume no it's actually a, a really interesting ballroom space that's downstairs from uh the, the, it's it's in the building it, it connects um and and then we turned it into you know this completely different thing but it, it the idea was take this room that has an interesting ceiling has a beautiful floor has a you know this gorgeous sort of glass envelope and and turn it into something special well tell me a little bit more about that because obviously you have these uh revolving photographs of without getting too spoilery for people who haven't listened there's there's a lot being showcased about the daily life of severed people you know kind of rotating on these uh these glass images that people are walking through showing what it's like to work in a severed workplace tell me about really customizing that for lumen's big soiree yeah well the the you know we went through a lot of iterations um and i I have to say that the the final one sort of happened after i stepped off um for other projects the the version we went through about nine versions though and all of them had this feeling of uh wanting to have it be partially feel feel almost real <laughs> yeah. if, if that makes sense so it, it, you know it wanted to feel like it was it was um you know we, we had versions where it was projected light we had versions where it was printed things we had versions where it was you know glass walls that were a maze you know the the idea was that we were in this sort of psychological space where uh Helly is sort of confronted with her own face sort of at every turn in a way that's both disconcerting and also sort of um, uniquely like awakening for her, you know? So, um, and and doing it in a space that feels so much like the other more friendly spaces that we've seen earlier in the film was a way to, or in the, in the series, was a way to sort of, you know, get that disorientation. Yeah. Um, 
in in the room. Now you mentioned also that you uh, you were behind, I think, Patricia Arquette's office space. Yes. Yeah. So that's an interesting one. Obviously, she's the only person down there who's not severed. And how did you kind of want to demonstrate the fact that she and everything about her is different through her office? Yeah, well, what's fun is the way, you know, Dan's so good. I mean, the writer is so good. It's, it's written as this space that's, you know, so that's far away from MDR for, for essentially no reason, right? I mean, she, it, it appears as we, as we uncover her secrets, she sort of only supervises this one group of people in any serious <laughs> way. And, um, and yet she's, you know, what seems like miles of left and right turns through all these different spaces uh, from MDR. And so the idea was that we sort of travel this underground maze only to come to a place that feels only slightly different in a weird way. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the major thing that's different is that she can see the light of day. That's the major thing. Mm. Uh, the, the sense that of all the spaces that we see downstairs in Lumen, and we see a lot of them by the time the series ends, only her office has a way that if you sort of stood next to the windows and peeked up, um, you could see the sky somehow. We think, we don't know, you know, mm-hmm. um, but that that's the, the feeling that you have. But even that is like a concrete light well, right? It's not, it's not a, it's, she doesn't have a garden. She doesn't have a view. She just has a, a tiny bit of sunlight making its way into her you know, yeah, um, which sort of echoes then what we see later on in her basement that she, you know, her her sort of underground life is her important life, um, and her above ground life is less so. You know. So, what was your favorite environment you worked on? Well, I don't know. That's a hard question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's uh, so many in the show. There's there's so many in the show. I think I think I liked Miss Casey's room the best. It it the sort of wooden space that with the tree in it, um, where she she does her sessions. Mm. Uh, that was I I don't know that one had my heart in it. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense, um, it, it, there's something about the sort of artifice of that uh, mixed with the like good intention of trying to make it nice uh, <laughs> that that I liked. You know, I liked that. I. Uh, I I really enjoyed making the making MDR or not MDR sorry the um, optics and design I, I enjoyed that space I loved how it worked how you come through it into the the vast room of of 3D printers and um, and the sort of romance of the scene of the two of them walking around looking at all the odd objects yeah. you know um, so I don't know my favorite spaces kind of go with my favorite scenes that makes sense. I, I, I loved the weirdness of Miss Casey and her, her sessions. And, and I, I loved the, the artwork in the entryway. I don't know. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot to love. The artwork, those. were you involved in uh, creating the specifics of some of those just deeply disturbing images? Yeah. I mean, it, it, everything on Severance is a massive group effort. So right. I, I got to shout out to like, the 20 people who worked on all of these things. You know, we had different illustrators working. We had everyone contributing ideas. Some of them, Jeremy, some of mine, some of them um, from uh, Ben, some of them from um, Jessica Lee Gagney, some of them, you know, everyone, everyone chiming in. But, and then they go down to the scenic artists who do uh, incredible work on top of the illustrations that we generate upstairs. And, you know, and sometimes as like in the case of the, um, 
the images of like optics and design attacking MDR and MDR attacking optics and design, you know, we, we actually painted like four versions of those and then Ben selected his favorite or, you know, we did four sizes of something or, you know, in an attempt to make sure it was actually really dead on. So it's, I feel like on a show like that, the, the most you can say about your contribution is that you shepherded it for a while. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, And, and it, uh, and and contribute and contribute as you as the as the moment strikes. So yeah, I, I certainly had my favorites in there. I love I love the image of um, young Kier meeting his wife, where he's stirring the giant pot in the factory. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a that was a favorite. Kier overlooking them from the mountaintops down onto the, the town. Um, another another favorite. Uh, but they yeah, it very very very, very fun and, and fun to really think about them hard and what would they be and try to find the, the style that makes them feel legitimate. Like they feel like art because they're beloved by, you know, some of our severed people, but that they also feel slightly odd, you know, slightly off to, to the viewer. So slightly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, tell me about the perpetuity wing. Um, boy, that's another space that went through a that went through a lot of of changes, and ultimately we we settled on this uh, great location, uh, which is a, a museum up the Hudson River, and it sort of inspired the architecture of it and the way you come down that grand staircase into the perpetuity wing, and then it was you know really a matter of refinement. I mean, the original designs of that had all kinds of like objects and ephemera. And it was certainly described that way in the script. Um, but Ben really drilled and drilled and drilled until we got down to just the sort of core pieces that he wanted on display, you know, and, and how we were going to do it. So, you know, we, and, and again, went through revision after revision. And sometimes with, you know, the smile wall was, was photographs and then it was uh, plaster molds of, of, mouths and you know it, it all kind of drifted through many iterations until it, it landed on, on where on where it landed yeah uh, one thing i thought was interesting was the way the office space was designed down to the desk it's very 1970s in general you have these interesting like ergonomic keyboards how what talk to me about the the decision making behind making everything so vintage in terms of their actual workspace well i mean you know early research from jeremy and jessica um and and ben to some extent uh was all about was all about this sort of like playtime 1960s 1950s you know company town kind of of world you know we looked at ibm headquarters in in uh, poughkeepsie we looked at all the you know the kodak headquarters um you know i i was looking at like general electric um and we were you know all of these places had this kind of town ownership and they were all from a they were all from a certain vintage, if not exactly the same period, if that makes sense. So, yeah. you know, they all had their heyday at different times, but they all kind of brought the same thing to their towns. They brought these sort of full industries, massive buildings, company housing, um, and and a certain kind of sleek aesthetic. So, like, you know, the the purple room that the that Helly and Mark walk through on their way to or, or back from 
uh, Cobell's office, you know, that's sort of, we sort of lifted the color scheme from like 1960s IBM advertisements where they were making everything in these various shades of purple and pink, you know? Um, and it, it's it, it sort of really just the, the sense that Lumen would create was still living in a technological past from its look, but then operating in a technological future with its device yeah. um, was it was an interesting tension that we kind of wanted to play with. And the sense that when you were downstairs, you'd never know that what you were doing, what you were working with was odd, but that everything still functions in this really sort of specific way. And and again, we we just kept looking at different ways until this one felt right. You know, we. we we did the graphics for the screens. Our very talented graphic designer, Tansy, you know, did a, a ton of iterations of what these graphics could look like and should they be in color and should they, you know, and, and trying to find the, the right mix of telling the audience that this was a strange space, that strange things happened here, but also giving it a kind of mystery as to what exactly that strange thing was, was always the top of the list. Yeah. And then, uh, what about things that are not owned by the company? There's only a few locations like that that we get to see, but there's, I guess, is the bar, no, the bar is not owned by the company, right? The bar that he goes to after work is an independent space. Well, we, we, we sort of assume that, although everything is sort of named after a previous founder. Right. Of one of, so, you know, it's hard to say who exactly owns the bar because we're still in the town of Kier and everything is sort of Kier-like. Um, you know, so Pips is also named after one of the founders. So, you know, all of these places that he goes somehow are still related back to, uh, but he, he still lives in this town, you know, so it's, uh, this is a strange piece, but I, I grew up in Salt Lake City. And so, um, and although I, I'm not Mormon, like so much of the infrastructure of the city was built by Mormons for Mormons. Yeah. And so it's got... It, that's a huge, totally different example. But when you get downtown and you start walking around the temple grounds, like it's hard to tell exactly what's owned by the Mormon church and what's not, you know what I mean? What What's owned by individual Mormons, but themed to look nice next to the temple grounds or, or what? It's sort of hard to tell. And I think in the same way, the town of Kier operates under that kind of aegis. Like it's, it's not exactly clear. So even the bar should look like a little bit kind of depressingly like low in corporate, I guess. <laughs> well, it's not even about looking corporate as much as it is just feeling like it's on the end, you know? And yeah. when we did the town, um, you know, we designed, I don't know, 10 storefronts to all feel like they belonged in the town. So it's little bits and pieces like, oh, the clothing store is named after the only one, one of the female founders of Kier and, and you know, like of, of Lumen. It's, it's about feeling like you're, you're living now, uh, sort of, and he works in a place that's now, sort of, and everything's owned by Lumen, sort of, um, but leaves a lot of uh, room for interpretation and room for growth because it was always the goal that this have more life than the nine episodes we were reading. Right, right. And then uh, lastly, his, uh, his friend's house, where they're going to the, the book reading. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Um, his sister. Yeah, his sister's, or his sister's house. Sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, that, because that's like the one location that is, in theory, not owned by the company or connected to the company, right? 
Yeah, and when we we you know we did a big map of where all these places were uh, at one point uh, in order to help us like map out the driving sequences and where the bridge would be and where like where all these pieces were and it was just definitively decided that they lived in a short a short drive away from Mark's house um, in the college town essentially where Mark used to work so mm-hmm. it was we it was kind of the idea that they lived I don't know if you lived in you know, Columbus, that they lived in Athens, Ohio, right? Like they, they lived a, a, an hour drive away from the company center in this other place where it's sort of more academically minded and, and everyone has their opinions on the, the company town down the road. So uh, that was a, a sort of conscious choice to make that. And the sort of the funeral home was another one that were sort of mapped as outside of town. You know, mm. uh, so that w- when we were doing the driving work, we, we knew, you know, where we wanted these things to be. And so, yeah, so that the inspiration for their house was um, there's this little town outside of New York City called Usonia um, that's full of like Frank Lloyd Wright and Frank Lloyd Wright disciples homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all sort of closely packed together. I mean, and each neighbor has, you know, an argument about which Frank Lloyd Wright or Frank Lloyd Wright inspired <laughs> home uh, is superior. Um, and we scouted them all, you know, and what we loved about that house two things. It, it has a beautiful view sort of into the woods, which was perfect for the action of the scenes. But also it, uh, it was actually designed by Frank Lloyd Wright's only Japanese disciple. So it's, it's like Frank Lloyd Wright-ish, but it also has this sort of uh, Japanese inspired bent where like the woodwork instead of going horizontal, like it would in any Frank Lloyd Wright home, it's like vertical. And, you know, it's like, mm. it's just slightly off of the the Frank Lloyd Wright map, and uh, and kind of had a wonderful place for him to for uh, Rickon to have his academic uh, speeches and, and his, right, right. his book open his book reading and you know yeah all all of those pieces. Yeah, well, y- you and the whole team have done such wonderful work on there. It's um, I can't. Re- I mean, I think the last time. I saw a show where the production design jumped out so much to me was like when, you know, when Game of Thrones first came on, you know, what you and the team have done is really remarkable and very memorable here. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how you all fare at the Emmys. And I'm excited to see when season two comes, how you guys are going to expand the world. You know, it's, it's really wonderful work. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, I just want to put in one other piece that I think isn't obvious to everybody who might be listening, but um, you know, all those like shots of super clean, beautiful white hallways and all like the design of this show is like one part of it, like the idea of it. But the the other part of it is like keeping all of that looking that way during a film shoot is almost impossible. Oh so, gosh. so it's also like you're also looking at the work of, you know, 100 people coming to work at, at 5 a.m. And, and like touching everything up in yeah. every direction and and making sure that every ceiling tile is perfect and then every you know every black line is straight and every tile is you know unbroken and so like there's it's a labor of love from far more people than i think is it immediately uh, appears yeah. um to have a thing that is that clean and that pristine and that featureless remain that way is is uh, much harder than it immediately sound yeah so, did everyone take off um, their shoes or something how did you get also <laughs> light? 
uh, just a, a lot of love and a lot of cleaning from a lot of dressers and a lot of scenics and, you know, oh coming in in the morning and replacing pieces of metal that got bent the night before. And, you know, oh so God. just, just lots of, um, lots of people caring very much that it looked that way is, is how it looks that way. So yeah, your first supervisor must have, been about <laughs> to have a metal breakdown. <laughs> no, it's very important to shout all those people out because they worked, they worked very hard. Yeah. Well, and so in, in uh, addition, how large, because I I've heard that you guys actually just built like a big ass facility to shoot this in, and it's actually you actually built tons of hallway space. It's not just camera cheating. How uh, how big was the the central location? Well, it was it was spread out over three stages, um, and one stage was basically MDR, a maze of hallways. Um, and then some of the other smaller sets. So like, you know, the kitchen and the, the closet and, you know, those spaces actually connect as they appear to in the set. But then, you know, as you start walking the hallways, even you get a little lost, honestly, on the set. So we had options to jump to other sets, you know, and a whole other stage on our same space where the locker room and um, Cobell's office and the room that we used for like the the room full of plants for the the little romantic love scene. And the goat room and the security office, you know, those were all on a separate stage, but connected with hallways that looked very similar. So the giant crossroads where they come to the crossroads was a different stage than the one that mm. MDR was on. And then when we built optics and design, we built it in another facility that mostly offered us the giant white room that all the printers were in, but we built that whole set inside that facility um, with its own hallway maze so that we could connect back to the main hallway maze. So yeah, there's, you know, there's probably thousands of feet of white hallway that all kind of you turn a corner and now you're in another space that was tied together with with simple cuts because we had an awful lot of it. So, um, you know, but his his initial walk that he takes uh, through the ground floor bloom and, you know, he walked around and around the set in different ways, but also then we were putting up walls as he went so that there was where there used to be a, a way to go straight. Now there was only a right turn, you know, mm -hmm. so changing the looks of it. It was a mix of everything, of building a lot, also doing camera tricks, also doing sort of Star Wars style, put up a wall or Star Trek style, put up a wall and now you're in a different hallway. So we sort of did it all in order to make that real. That's so cool. Yeah, that, yeah. that sounds like a fun, but honestly, a little bit terrifying set to be on. Logistically, logistically complex. Um, yes. my, our, our our director Angelica had like maps for every walk <laughs> that was going to happen because we were always throwing up a wall, covering an opening, taking down you know little letters that go by a door to make that door nondescript now or change the door completely. You know, so it it was it was meetings upon meetings upon meetings to make sure that we were telling the story of this place being a real maze. You know, in, <laughs> a, in an accurate way. So that's so yeah. cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. It really is Oh, amazing. my pleasure. All right. Enjoy yourself. Happy to talk about it. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Have a good day. Do I know you? My name is Petey. I'm from work. So, we're friends? I'm your best friend. Nothing is what they say. I used to think it would take a monster to put someone in a place like that office. Especially if the person was himself. If you want to know what's going on down there, you'll find the beginning of a very long answer. What's happening? What is it we actually do here? Daydream. 
It's important your eyes be kind. Do you know how to make your eyes kind? One of the things I was really curious about your work on this is that I know that there was a giant set built, but I assume there was also some camera trickery on your end to make it seem like those hallways are going forever and to kind of cheat things like that. So tell me a little bit about working to like expand the space of Lumen. Uh, well, that's an interesting question because it was a concern uh, at the beginning and it was a concern of Ben's to how do you in these defined sets, because we're working on stages and these stages are not ginormous. We're in New York. We don't actually have that much space. Um, so we knew that we needed to recycle a lot of these hallways to make them feel different or have different, just, just different details that would kind of throw people off. Um, so Jeremy Hindle, the designer, built as many shoe leather hallways that he could wrapping around the sets. It was actually even difficult sometimes to enter the sets because you'd have to go through a hallway. And then like some days those hallways would be open for, you know, fire exits or whatever. Like you'd have to work around it. If we blocked off one part of the set, they'd have to open up another part of the set. It was kind of like a Tetris piece. So it was a combination of work between the designer, uh, Ben, and I in terms of like, okay, let's look at every scene. And even with the ADs, because um, we'd look at one of the, at the hallways and we knew that we were using it for four different scenes, but we knew that the four scenes were different. So with the ADs, we'd sit down overhead plans of the stages and kind of map out new shots and angles and, and say, okay, this one we're going to block off this way. Oh, this one we're going to open up there. Or here we're going to put a green screen here. So what it was, was taking every single hallway scene and having a specific conversation about it to make it different. So it was a challenge. It was a challenge. But we would always, you know, be like, we need to do something new or, you know. And that came from the fear of shooting in such a banal kind of space. You know, we just really felt like we were needed to be challenged and challenge ourselves. And I feel like that speaks to the hallways. Then the, the MDR set is a whole other thing. But it was such a good set that you could put the camera anywhere in the room and it would give you something amazing. That speaks a lot to the design of it. Yeah, uh, I, I spoke to Jeremy and then his work in there seems incredible. So you guys made a good team. One thing I was curious about is uh, the differences in lighting these office spaces that are meant to be sterile and generic and then lighting something like the break room or the room where you, uh, what's the room called where you go for like your therapy session? Wellness room? The wellness room. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was curious about the differences in kind of those spaces and also the um, Hall of Perpetuity, is that correct? Perpetuity yeah. wing. Yeah, Perpetu yeah. Perpetuity wing. Um, well, I have to say that I'm like very intense when it comes to ceilings and how lighting will work in set designs. I like to be there super early to have an input on it. And because, um, I mean, I, I was there quite early on this one and I, I knew that there was going to be the challenge of shooting in an office space. And for me, it was impossible to think that everything was going to look the same or have the same vibe. So, and working with Jeremy has been great because he's so open to taking comments from cinematographers. And it was like, a conversation about each ceiling you know even the size of the squares in mdr we kind of had a little moment where he wanted the squares to be smaller and i was like no i need them to be bigger because it needs to be softer Thor's and adam the way his face is i had remembered shooting adam early on um, for a test and noticing how to get light in his eyes 
and you know every every single ceiling I definitely had a comment about the only ceiling that I really stood away from because I think it can be annoying sometimes when DPs are just <laughs> invasive with their with their needs um the one ceiling I didn't make any comments on was Cobell's office but I really wanted there to be a light well in there so I was like, you can do the ceiling you want. I'm going to use the light well because I want it to, I want it to kind of to be like a duality of bright and dark for her. Like we kind of see her dark side. So her office is just more moody, which gives you a little bit of like that ominous feeling that Lumen has. So, and then every other set, we, we knew that we wanted them to feel different, you know, that we needed something special every time. And then you have these experience sets like wellness and the break room. So you know, you just really ran with it and did something different. And the, the light well concept came back a lot. You know, the, the wellness room in the middle, there's a light well in that ceiling. So like the lights will dim down when you get into the session and it's a, a light well. And Perpetuity Wing um, was inspired by this museum called the Chichu Museum in Naoshima, Japan, which is a museum that I went to years ago. And um, it's lit by light well. So it's like an underground museum that has non-direct light wells. And then when we found this location, which was an actual museum where we shot, this looks really different than what it ended up being designed as. We wanted to use it for this like light well concept also. Um, but you don't know if they're like real light wells, if they're artificial, that you know, we, we try and like play with that. You don't really know idea. Now, what about the um, supremely depressing, gloomy look of the, the outer world when you get to basically anyone's house? I, I, I those looked so lonely and that was a lot to do with the shadows. So tell me about that. Well, speaking of shadows, we're definitely in Mark's shadow at that point. Um, I think that the outside world, I always kind of come back to this idea of the conditioning of life, you know, and Mark's depression and his state is influencing his surroundings, you know, just like he influences the lighting in his house. Being someone that's depressed, you don't go on and turn on every single light in your house. You know, you're not like trying to make it a warm and fuzzy environment. So whatever would be around him would be something that was just practically driven for him. You know, if he needed to go in the kitchen, he would turn a light on in the kitchen and that would be it. Um, so that brought around and kept the darkness around him, just really reflected kind of his state of mind. And even in the like color grade of it, because I think we exposed, I exposed the camera in a way that it's always underexposed a couple stops, like two stops and then pull it back up in the braid. I just, that's how I like to work with cameras. But with the colorists, we kind of um, would have like a lot of pop and stretch out the contrast inside. And then the outside world, we'd just be playing more on like a softer contrast, something that was more monotonous and played into like darker darks, but there were not as many highlights. So it's just, yeah, it just comes back to how Mark's feeling. And then the inside, because he's technically running away from that unhappiness, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense to reflect that. I don't think it makes sense to reflect what the characters are feeling inside because they're not as like developed technically. But that's also the intrigue of the show is like what it will seep out of these people when you take away their minds, you know, like, well, they're part of their mind that has all of that conditioning of life. Now, there's one moment in the show, the finale, that I thought was a really interesting setup in part because of your lit spaces. It's where, uh, I don't want to be too spoilery, but it's like the exposition and you have these kind of lit columns with like the rotating visuals of people inside Lumen. I'm talking about the ending where it's like showcasing to the audiences. I thought that was a really striking moment. Obviously, some of that's Jeremy's work too. Tell me a little bit about bringing together the uh, exhibition space. 
Well, there is more logic, uh, not logic, it's more of a practical thing, I think, in this location. So the last episode is a lot of study cam and a lot of improv, a lot of following actors, and a lot of like, not necessarily even improv. I mean, there was, there was a lot of direction still for the camera, but it needed to be fluid and it needed to go where it needed to be, you know? So we couldn't really have things in the way. So we chose a space that had a built-in uh, lighting component. That actual location had an LED. I don't even know how to describe it. It was like a custom thing. It's just like the whole ceiling was lined with LEDs and you could program lighting in it. And so we kind of chose this cool blue, very lumen kind of color. Um, and then having the cubes actually be lit like from within, um, there were like these soft boxes. So we didn't actually need, we didn't really need to add any lights. Like the whole space was lit. We would follow Bert around with like a little something, you know, to give her some eye light. But um, it really was about being practical. And that came in like the design of almost all the spaces that were going to be around for. So throughout the show, uh, there's a lot of scenes that just give you this sense of uneasiness. You'll have shots, you know, that are like deliberately off kilter and I guess like the geometry plays with that. Uh, tell me a little bit about framing some of the shots in the underground to uh, just put you off slightly. Well, I think you kind of explain it in that, you know, in your question in terms of, yes, the shots, there, there is like a very unbalanced frame, but at the same time it works, you yeah. know, and, and it, it's, it's like an unbalanced balance, which is really what you are feeling when you're in the underground world, you know, you're not, something's off you don't know what's off they don't know the characters don't know what's off but they know something's wrong you know they all kind of end up feeling that I think it was to represent that hinging world also you know like how it's all about to shift um and even more than the framing like the support of the camera explained that as well you know we did a lot of we started off very studio very robotic static kind of shots like if it moved it was a perfect move or like a whip pan or even the shots in the hallways were done on rickshaws or dollies with remote remote heads you know it wasn't steady cam because we just needed it to be square and perfect um but as the show moves forward and in the later episodes we're introducing things like handheld which are more organic and gives you a different type of frame as well we're less in that like super rigid composition because like things are starting to fall apart um, and then you end up with steady cam, which is like a completely subjective, even more human type of filmmaking. So, do you have a single scene in the show you're most proud of how you captured? And if you don't have <laughs> one, uh... <laughs> I don't. Well, see, I don't. I don't like. There are things I love. You know, I really love the interiors of Mark's house. I had so much fun doing that. I was very, you know, in the past, I've done more. More work on location. I definitely was like a DP that like came up shooting location work a lot, you know. And I pushed that. I'm working with Ben on Escape. I was like hardcore with that. I we need to shoot on location. Everything we can shoot on location. No sets. I mean, we had to do the prison in the set, but um, this one was a lot of set work, and it scared yeah. me. Um, but I embraced it, and I felt like Mark's house. We really had fun doing like painterly kind of lighting. The gaffer and I even had like the grip, the gaffer and I had a moment uh, in prep, like several days where we just like practiced lighting for different scenes. You know, we would bring up, okay. And I really was trying to get scenes with sun in them because I wanted to do shapes. Like I really love doing like figures and shapes on the walls and playing with contrast. But this is so not like a sunny show. 
Um, <laughs> but 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 any opportunity we had to like do something, we really went like full force ahead with it. Um, and it was hard because we didn't know what the weather was going to be on location. So we shot the studio stuff before. I mean, it was risky. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, because uh, I'm trying to remember what I heard about. Um, the, ent- the entire time you guys shot, it was a gloomy and cloudy, right? In, uh, in New York? No, 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 it wasn't. I mean, we worked around it. Like, because we had determined what these exteriors were before on stage, when the schedule came around to shoot uh, Mark's house and exterior lumen, like, in my mind, it was really clear. Like, I'm obsessed with the weather, the big thing. Um, I did these crazy mood boards for the first three episodes and every episode had specific weather. Every day had specific weather. Like I take the chronology and all right, this is a sunny day. This is a foggy day. This is a rainy day. And um, Ben is like super supportive of that. And obviously I run everything by him, but like he helps, um, you know, get the actors on board with that to make sure we're okay to shoot things in specific orders. Cause like when we're going to, and the AD is also super helpful, but when we get to the location, I was like, oh, look, episode 14, three needs to be sunny. So tomorrow's going to be sunny. We need to shoot it tomorrow. And everyone was super helpful with that. And it paid off a lot in the end. Obviously, there's like one scene or two scenes that we didn't hit the weather we wanted, we needed. Um, so, I mean, that happens. It's hard to get it perfect. But um, yeah, it, it definitely wasn't gloomy and rainy every day. But when we needed it to be, we'd schedule around that. Yeah. Well, this is great work on the show. I can't wait to see what you're going to do in uh, season two as the Lumen world expands. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it. No problem. My pleasure. All right. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interviews with the crafts team behind Apple TV's Severance, composer Theodore Shapiro, production designers Jeremy Hindle and Nick Francone, and cinematographer Jessica Lee Gagne. All of them are up for your consideration for this year's Emmy Awards. And Severance is currently streaming in full on Apple TV+. You have been listening to the Next Best Series podcast, part of the Next Best Picture podcast umbrella, and we are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we 
even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.